A long time ago, there was a shepherd boy on a hillside outside of a village tending his flock of sheep. And one day he got bored and he thought, what should I do to try to liven up this boring day watching the sheep? And so he decided, I'm going to play a prank on the people in the village and I'm going to cry wolf. And so he directed his body toward the village and he cried wolf and the villagers came running out to see what was going on, if they could help protect the sheep. And what did they find? They found the shepherd boy cackling, laughing, because he had played such a great prank on them. He caused them to, to leave their pints half drunk in the village pub and come out and protect from an imaginary threat. And of course, he continued laughing, and they went home angry. And the next day, he decided, I got such a good kick out of this, and I'm going to do it again. So he cries wolf again. And Today, not as many people come, but many still do, and again, they find him there cackling, and, and they leave angry, and he continues laughing. And the third day, he's, he's thinking about doing it again, when, lo and behold, much to his surprise, a real wolf comes up to, you know, attack the sheep, looking hungry. And so he cries, wolf, wolf, and much to his dismay, on the third day, nobody comes, and obviously, he's not a very courageous boy, so he kind of sits by and watches as the wolf destroys his sheep. We've all heard Aesop's fable of the boy who cried wolf, uh, and, and the moral of the story is quite clear that you should tell the truth. And in the end, if you're, you're not a person who tells the truth, it's going to come back on your own head. It's going to end up hurting you. Well, I want to tell you a revised edition of the boy who cried wolf. In this version, the shepherd boy is sitting on the hillside outside of the village, and uh, he's watching a sheep one day, and not just one wolf, but a whole pack of hungry wolves comes walking toward the sheep. And so he cries, wolf, wolf, down toward the village. And as his cry reaches the villagers, it reaches a group of people who have been debating for several months about the existence of wolves. Do wolves even exist? You see, this is a town that hasn't seen a wolf in many, many decades. There's a few older citizens who say they saw wolves in their day when they were children, but these remarks are kind of chalked up to the senility of older citizens. Uh, and not only that, but the powerful people, the leaders in the community, have been advocating that, that wolves are a myth. They've been writing in the local newspaper, giving speeches in the public square, saying, wolves are not real, we should redirect our resources to something else besides protecting against this imaginary threat of wolves. And so by the time the cry reaches the villagers, there's only a few people who still believe in wolves, and they're too intimidated by the majority to do anything. And so, try as he might, the boy cannot fend off the pack of hungry wolves. What I hope this revised edition of The Boy Who Cried Wolf illustrates is that believing the truth is just as important as telling the truth. Believing the truth is just as important as telling the truth, and failing to believe the truth can have consequences that are just as disastrous as failing to tell the truth. This morning is the, the first sermon in a series of five sermons on our core values at King's Cross uh, what, what is that? What is, what is with that? Well, over a year ago, when we began to pray and think about planting a church, starting a new church, 12 or 15 of us who were on that original core team were meeting in living rooms and talking about and praying about and reading scripture to try to figure out what kind of church do we want to be? What do we think God has called the church to be? And so we tried to answer some important questions. The first one being, why do we exist? Like, what, what's the point of our existence? And we, we opened God's word and we saw a couple things. One, uh, we exist to make disciples. And we exist to glorify God, and, and the means that he's given us to do that is his word. And so we, we wrote a mission statement, that is, we exist to glorify God and make disciples of Jesus by proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. From there, we asked, what do we want to be? Like, if, if we pursue that mission, what will we become? That's the, the, the question that a vision statement answers. And we said, we will try to be a Christ-centered church for East Nashville, for the community that we're, we're planting our church in. 
From there, we ask, like, if we're going to do that, if we're going to pursue this mission and this vision in this time and place, this context, what are the things that we're going to have to really nail? Like, there are values that every church should have, but every church is unique. It's, it's local to a particular time and context. So what do we think are the values that we're going to have to be, like, just, just really work hard to pursue and create? And we came up with five, and these are what we call our core values. Truth, community, discipleship, unity in diversity, and service. So for the next five weeks, we're going to preach five sermons. Now, this is going to be a little more topic-focused than normal. If you come to church here regularly, you know that our normal practice is to open up a book of the Bible and preach the next section in it. We spent the better part of the last 11 months in the Gospel of Mark with a couple breaks doing just that. But for the next five weeks, they'll be a little more topic-focused, and it's going to be a little more teachy and less preachy. The, the goal of preaching is heart transformation, life transformation. While we still pray that that will happen, uh, the next five weeks may be a little more instructive uh, for your, your minds than just your hearts. I hope that won't cause you to check out or to stay home for the next five weeks. Why are we doing this? For a couple reasons. One is a refresher for those of us who were, were in that packed living room at our tiny house on Straightway Circle a year and a half ago. It was really hot, kind of like it is in here right now. As a refresher for us who have been around from the beginning, but also as an introduction and an invitation to those who are newer to our church. You, maybe you've gone through the membership class and so you've heard about these core values, but it's not something that we talk about all the time, right? Uh, or maybe you're brand new to King's Cross and you just want to know, what is this church about? This is an invitation for you to, to pursue these values with us. Not only that, it's also a metric. Uh, I'm sure none of y'all have, have had to answer this question as many times as I have, but some of you have had to answer it, and that is the question, how's the church plant going? I had to answer it four times yesterday. I've answered it like a thousand times in the last year, and I have to tell you, it's frust a frustrating question for me to answer, because on the one hand, I'm like, I don't know. Ask me in like five years how it's going. And on the other hand, I'm like, what, what do you mean by that? Do you want me to answer the question, how fast is your church growing? Because I think that's what a lot of people mean when they ask, how's the church plant going? And so what I want to shift to is these five core values are really metrics for how our church is doing. Like, how are we doing with truth? Because if, if we're not doing great digging into the truth of God's word that he's revealed to us, then it doesn't matter how fast we grow or how much money we're, we're you know, bringing in or how big our budget is or whatever. On the other hand, if we never grow by another person, if we are rooted in God's word and, and the truth that God has given us, it's a, a wonderful success as a church. And the same is true for our other core values. So this can give you a way to answer the question, how is the church plant going? And finally, it's also casting vision for our future. We want to continue to run after these things together. And so I want to just invite you especially if you're already a part of this church, to lean in today, to lean in the next five weeks, to remember that it's not my job to create a culture that values these five things. It's not mine and Clint's job. It's not the pastor's and the deacon's job. It's everybody's job to pray and contend for a church culture where we value these things. Today, I'm going to preach really from several sayings from the Gospel of John about truth, but I'm going to read two as we begin. The first one is from John 17, 17. And then I'll flip back to John 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus is praying to his Father for his disciples. And he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. In John 14, 16 and 17, Jesus is, is talking to his disciples and he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. This is the word of the Lord. 
I want to begin our time together by painting a couple of caricatures for you, a couple of different approaches in our society to truth. The first is somebody that I'll call facts don't care about your feelings guy. Uh, You all probably know somebody like this in your life. If you don't, I might suggest that you might be this person in somebody else's life. Facts don't care about your feelings guy. He's probably a young guy, maybe in his mid-20s. He's on the right side of the political spectrum. Uh, He might work in like some sort of data analysis, and he's always appealing to facts, objective truth, right? Science and math. He's, He's probably kind of vocal about his unpopular opinions. Like you might see him on Facebook advocating loudly that men and women should not be paid equally, and he has the facts and the data to prove it. He might be arguing against things like systemic racism and saying, look, I've got the data, I've got the facts to prove it. He's very vocal about his unpopular opinions because, after all, facts don't care about your feelings. On the other hand, we have, you can't judge my lived experience, gal. If the first guy is appealing to objective truth, this gal is appealing to subjective truth. Whatever facts, whatever, whatever data you have, at the end of the day, it can't trump my lived experience. What I know what I've experienced, and it is true, and therefore no, no sort of data or facts that you bring can mitigate my lived experience. Now, I'm not trying to tip my hand. Uh, if you're more offended by one of those presentations than the others, again, I might suggest that it's because you land more on one of those side, that sides than the other. I'm simply trying to present this dichotomy in our culture between an appeal to objective truth and subjective truth. Different sort of warring factions about which of these approaches is the correct one. I want to suggest that, that each of them actually has some good things to commend, but each of them also falls short. For example, the objective truth approach, facts don't care about your feelings guy, helpfully appeals to scientific and mathematic realities in the world. It recognizes that we live in a world of repeating, observable phenomena that we can look at and we can understand to some degree how the world works and we can adjust ourselves to that. But it falls short in some other ways. For one, it ignores other sources of knowledge and understanding and wisdom, like philosophy and theology and art. All of these, for for millennia, have been understood as ways that we come to knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Not only that, it's based on a faulty understanding of what a human being is. This approach kind of assumes that human beings are like brains on a stick, that we are just all cognitive, all rational, and that we don't have embodied experiences as humans. It fails to understand that we have embodied experiences that teach us things, and that is by design. God designed us to learn things through our embodied experiences. This is good. Not only that, we learn things through our emotional responses to experiences that we have. I I come from a, really, uh, all of us who are members here, we, we come from a theological tradition that really emphasizes thinking, probably over feeling. And I was taught a lot about the dangers of churches uh, being emotionally manipulative. And I was like, you, you always need to have your head on and be thinking hard when you go into a church because it might try to manipulate you emotionally. And that's fine and that's true as far as it goes. But you know what else can be manipulated? Your thoughts. <laughs> Just as easily as your emotions can be. The last uh, shortcoming with this approach, probably not the last, the last one I'm going to mention, is that in some cases it does functionally silence people whose experiences are not consistent with the, the, the facts and the data, especially in any given culture, minority experiences that often do not comport with the data and, and, and the facts and the statistics. 
What about the subjective approach? Well, again, there's something good to commend. It is rightly concerned with personal experience. I've already said that's a crucial part of who we are as human beings. But there are several shortcomings. Again, it can be prone to ignore and not grapple with reality. If you've been in a conversation with somebody who says, well, my lived experience has X, Y, Z, you know how that phrase functions. It functions to end the conversation. It's saying, I am right, I am authoritative because of my experience, and this conversation is done as a result. So it fails to grapple with some of the cold, hard facts of reality. Not only that, but even while we admit that the objective approach can sometimes silence people, particularly with minority experiences, usually the, the subjective approach is used to say that any appeal to objective truth is an attempt to silence minority experiences. And that's just not true. It's an overstatement. Finally, just on a practical level, the subjective approach tends to devolve into relational and cultural and political warfare. Because what happens when my lived experience and your lived experience rub up against each other? Who wins? Who gets to decide whose lived experience wins? So on the one hand, we have an objective truth that ignores or or sort of nullifies personal experience. On the other hand, we have a subjective approach that ignores the sort of facts of reality. I want to introduce another complicating factor. Both of them are inconsistent. Both parties are actually happy to make use of the other approach to truth when it's convenient for them. For example, group one, facts don't care about your feelings. That side, in my view at least, tends to be more prone to falling for fake news an inability to actually discern between facts and feelings. On the other hand, we have group two talking about lived experience that puts signs in front of their house that say, we believe in science, which is like a weird thing to say when you're appealing to lived experience as the ultimate arbiter of truth. But then also like, we only believe in some kinds of science and not in other kinds of science. What I'm saying is in 21st century America, we're all postmodern now. Everybody, left, right, everyone. Now, I'm, I'm going to try to answer a question that I just raised by using the word postmodern, which is, what is that? What is postmodernism? And I'm not, I, I, I don't have a PhD in philosophy, uh, so I'm a little bit over my pay grade. But there is a lot of overlap between theology and philosophy, and uh, I'm just going to try to give you the bare sort of like uncontroversial facts about what this is. We've all heard the phrase postmodernism. Uh, the inception of postmodernism, and really the coining of the term, came in the mid-20th century through the work primarily of some French philosophers, Jean-Francois Lyotard, Michel Foucault, and Jacques Derrida, uh, who coined this term, who coined terms like lived experience. But it really has its roots further back in the work of Frederick Nietzsche in the 1800s. Nietzsche is called the patron saint of postmodernism. And really the, the heart of his work was this profound skepticism about our ability to grasp any objective truth profound skepticism about our ability to to really understand anything to be objectively true. Nietzsche famously said, there are no facts, only interpretations. There are no facts, only interpretations. He's being a bit tongue-in-cheek, right? He's not saying there's no such thing as a fact. He's saying we have no ability with, with full certainty to actually grasp it. And so all we're doing is offering our own interpretations, which differ from everybody else's interpretations. Leotard said that, Postmodernism is, at its heart, at its core, 
incredulity toward meta-narratives. There's some big words there. He means skepticism that any meta-narrative, which is a sort of overarching truth claim, overarching story about the world, like Christianity or uh, Buddhism or naturalism or Islam, any, any meta-narrative, we, we can't actually know that it's true. So we need to be skeptical about all of them. And what comes from that, naturally, is if we need to be skeptical about meta-narratives, if there are no facts, only interpretations, then it would be unjust for me to try to impose my beliefs, my meta-narrative, onto anybody else, and vice versa. And so naturally, that gives way, as those ideas sort of seep into Western culture, to what I'm going to call postmodernism one, which really kind of think about the 1990s and into the 2000s in the United States, it's characterized by ideas like moral relativity. So we say things like, live your truth, excuse me, live your truth. You can have a truth and I can have a truth and we can each live our truth and we don't have to get in each other's way. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Um, What was the the, you remember the coexist bumper sticker that used, it used to be really popular in postmodernism one? We don't see it as much anymore because postmodernism one gives way to postmodernism two. We quickly hit a problem, and that is again whose truth wins? Whose truth wins when our truths rub up against each other? So I'm going to give you some sort of like hot button cultural examples of this over the last 25 years. I'm not here trying to tip my hand and say who's right or what should be done. But all of us recognize these things. So, for example, 9-11 happens. Some of you amazingly weren't alive when that happened. Uh, But those of us were, remember that what followed 9-11 were lots of debates about whether certain religions could really coexist peacefully. Was 9-11 an example of, of true Islam or an aberration of Islam? And if the former, can Islam and Christianity or Judaism or secularism coexist peacefully? And if not, who gets to decide and judge between them? More recently, in 2014, you have the Obergefell versus Hodges ruling that legalizes same-sex marriage. And one of the things that, that has come out of that is, for example, you have uh, people who own bakeries who bake wedding cakes for a living who say, it would defile my conscience to bake a, wedding for a, same, uh, a cake for a same-sex wedding. So then, again, what the two truths are rubbing against each other. Should the couple be compelled to find a different bakery, or should the baker be compelled to bake the cake? I'm not here suggesting an answer. I'm just saying this is another example of two truths rubbing up against one another. More recently, like in the last several months, there have been debates about uh, transgender athletes. When, when people born biologically male identify as female, should they be able to compete in sports against other people who identify as female, who are biologically female, when they have physical advantages? Who should be compelled not to live their truth? Because one of them has to. So the point being, in a context like this, in our sort of American culture wars, where where some people are objective sometimes, other people are subjective sometimes, we flip-flop whenever we want to, and there's, there's, there's total skepticism about ultimate truth, what happens is truth becomes a function of power. Truth becomes a function of power so that I'm not really concerned about what's true and you're not really concerned about what's true. I'm concerned about controlling the narrative and so are you because whoever controls the narrative controls the culture. And so we're happy to flip-flop between the objective and the subjective approach whenever it's politically convenient. To restate the problem, one, this just lands us in an absolute mess, which we've all experienced, right? We're told that we have to choose between an objective truth that negates personal experience 
or a subjective truth that ignores factual reality, both of which are ready and willing to change when it's convenient. Uh, what do we do in that sort of environment? Like, are we just hopelessly awash in a sea of, of subjectivity and like we have no hope of grasping onto something that's actually true? What we need is an objective truth that does not negate personal experience. What we need is a subjective truth that does not ignore factual reality. And we need a truth that combines both of these and doesn't just flip back and forth whenever it's convenient. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is exactly what Christianity offers us. That's exactly what Christianity offers us. First point is that Christ is the objective truth of God. Jesus Christ is the objective truth of God. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word that is translated word in John 1 is a Greek word that, uh, the the Greek word itself is logos. I just said the the word word so many times in that sentence. Ancient Greek philosophers around the time of John and preceding John when he wrote his gospel had this idea of the logos that was this sort of underlying and overarching principle of truth and reality, sort of the rhyme and reason of existence and of the universe. In a sense, you might say that the logos was the the ultimate objective truth that ordered everything in the universe. And John does this ingenious thing where he co-ops this word from Greek philosophy And he says, that logos that you guys have been talking about, he's a person. I know him. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the eternal son of God. And he came, the word, the logos became flesh and dwelt among us and revealed God to us. The word, the logos, is God. Fast forward to John 17, which I read. Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word, your logos is truth. Jesus is saying, I am the truth. John 14, 6, he says it much more directly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus just comes out and says, I am the word, the word is truth, therefore I am truth. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 both talk about how he is the revelation of the fullness of God, revelation from above in a way that we can understand, in human flesh, in something that we can see and touch. In other words, there is an objective, ultimate truth. Nietzsche was wrong. Postmodernism is is, is wrong. There is an objective truth. Now, postmodernism is right that we can't access it on our own. Like, you and I don't have the resources from our limited standpoint to know objective truth. It has to be revealed to us from someone who does have the standpoint to see everything. And that's exactly who Jesus is. You and I don't have a God's eye view of reality, but Jesus does. And he came to us in human flesh to show it to us, to tell it to us. He has revealed God's ultimate truth, which is himself to us. But this ultimate truth does not negate personal experience for two reasons. One, because Jesus became a human person with human person experiences. And putting on human flesh, Jesus baptized your experience as a human being, told you it was valuable. And the second reason is because he promised to send us the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit, if Christ is the objective truth of God, the Spirit, you might say, is the subjective truth. Of God. John 14, 16, and 17, again, Jesus tells his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and he will be in you. Two things that stand out to me about those comments. One is that 
Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And the second is that uh, he says that the spirit will be in you. He doesn't say with you. He doesn't say beside you. He says the spirit will be in you. That is subjective language. That is experiential language. That is personal language. And what does he do once he comes into you? He doesn't ignore factual reality. Rather, his ministry is to point us to objective truth. John 14, 26, Jesus says, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will do what? Will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have told you. Objective truth and subjective truth are not pitted against one another. The the subjective truth of God, the Holy Spirit, comes to point us back to everything that Jesus said. So we have in Christianity an objective truth that doesn't nullify personal experience and a subjective truth that doesn't ignore factual reality. And both the Son and the Spirit are one with the Father, together the eternally unchanging triune God. So not only do we have the best of both worlds, we have an unchanging version of the best of both worlds. There are some things, did you know this, that God cannot do. One of the things that God cannot do is God cannot change. God is so perfect that for him to change would imply either that he wasn't perfect before or that he's becoming imperfect. God cannot change, which means that the truth of God doesn't flip-flop when it's politically expedient. It is perfectly and always true. Christianity, we have an objective truth that doesn't negate personal experience, a subjective truth that does not ignore factual reality, both of which are perfectly consistent and unchanging. Now, practically You might want to take a breath when I say the word practically. Uh, I'm trying to end the philosophy lecture at this point. What does this do for us? Like, how do we live this? What does it look like for us to value this as a church? Well, one, in what has been called a post-truth world, we have access to the truth. And this gives us confidence. It gives us a a humble confidence. You all, I, I know that your confidence may have been shaken in the last few years. It is, we have been through troubling times in our, in our society, in our culture. Like, we, you may have seen somebody who you looked up to as a Christian, a mentor, somebody who taught you, who taught wonderful things from the scriptures and truth, and who just morally went completely off the rails. And that may have left you thinking, like, should I doubt everything that this person has ever said? Or on the flip side, you may see somebody who has taught you before and and you really continue to appreciate their character. They seem to be a kind person, but they've just gone off the rails doctrinally. And now they're teaching stuff that contradicts everything that they taught for the last 20 years. And, And maybe one or both of these experiences has happened to you and you're just wondering, can I trust anybody? Add on top of that, like, we disagree about everything. Do masks help? Do vaccines help? Who should I vote for? Like basic news reporting. Can I trust or believe anything? And all of this may leave you feeling not very confident. And I just want to suggest to you that because of the claims of Christianity, you can have confidence, not about every single thing in equal measure. Jesus didn't come to tell us about vaccines or who we should vote for. He came to tell us some things, though, and we can have extreme confidence about the most important matters. I have a a good friend who over the last few years has, has been deconstructing his faith. And one of the things that he told me one day was, uh, I grew up in this Christian context where everything was black and white. Everything was black. There was no room for gray. And now, he says, I'm in a context where everything is gray. And there's no black and white. And he asked me, do you believe that we can be black and white about anything? And what I said was, I, I think that we 
can be black and white about the most important things. Not about every single thing. Not everything is revealed with equal clarity, but the most important things. There is a God. He is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is love in his very essence. He is good. He proves his love and goodness for us in Christ on the cross, dying for us and being raised from the dead. We not only can be, we have to be black and white about these things because how else would we survive all the rest of the gray that we have to swim in all the time? We can be confident, not about everything, but humbly confident about the most important things. So one, this reality gives us confidence. Two, it forms us into a certain kind of people, believing and, and living in, right, holding to cognitively and experiencing the truth of God, shapes us into a certain kind of people. And so I want to give three ways it shapes us as we conclude. First, it makes us people of the word. It makes us people of the word. John 18, 39, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. He says, I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. To which Pilate interestingly responds, what is truth? He was ahead of his time. Jesus says, I don't have time to unpack that, so I'm just going to throw it out there. But Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Again, let's go back to like core values discussion. Are we listening to the voice of Jesus? Because if not, nothing else matters. Nothing else about our church matters if you and I and we together are not listening to the voice of Jesus. But if we are, then the rest will pretty much take care of itself, won't it? Like the, the, the rest of the core values aren't really in any particular order of importance, but there's a reason that this one is first and the most foundational. Because if we're doing this, then everything else will take care of itself. What does it look like to be people who listen to the voice of Jesus? It's interesting, in the Bible, there's, there's a dual usage of the word, word. It refers to both Christ and to the scriptures. Why? Because Jesus would say in Luke 24, all of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is about me. It's all about me. The word, the Bible, is the word about the word, Jesus. So we listen to the voice of Jesus by being Bible people, by being people who open the scriptures and read them and not just study them, but meditate on them, memorize them, let them give shape and arc to, to our lives, our experiences. We should be listening to the word and practically, practically, this rootedness in the objective truth of God keeps us and holds us when we don't feel the subjective ministry of the Holy Spirit. There will be days or weeks or months or years in your life, you may be in one of these seasons right now, when you just do not feel the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life experientially. And that's normal, and that's okay. But the, the objective truth in God's word will, will keep you and will hold you when you don't have that experience. People of the word, second, we should be people of prayer. John 14, 26, again, remember the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. How does he do that? Among other ways, he does it through prayer. The Spirit ministers to us when we pray, in particular, when we meditate on God's word, which Tim Keller and probably others have said is the bridge to prayer. Meditation on God's word is the bridge to prayer. As we, we ruminate, as we chew on, as we think about, as we live in God's word, the Spirit draws to our mind truths about God, truths about ourselves, truth about the gospel, what we need to repent of. And he ministers to us the truth of God through prayer. And, and just like the word objectively keeps us in seasons when we don't feel the ministry of the Spirit, this ministry of the Spirit will keep us when we struggle with the word. 
it is okay to come to a passage of Scripture and say, I do not know what this means. It is even okay to come to a passage of Scripture and say, I don't like what this seems to mean. That's okay. The Spirit will minister to you in that. Uh, it's interesting. The, the, you've probably heard of the Puritans. They have such a bad rap. Their name is like a cuss word now. Uh, we think of them as really arrogant people, but one of the practices that many of the Puritans had is reading their Bibles in the margins. They would often write, more light, more light, God, more light, Spirit. I don't understand this yet, or I don't like this yet. Spirit, would you, would you open my eyes? Would you give me more light to see what this passage is saying, how it's beautiful? Would you help me see it? The Spirit will do that for us. He will give us more light as we engage with God's Word. Finally, people of the Word, people of prayer, and this will make us people of evangelism. I just lost some of you. Uh, you were okay with the Word and with prayer, but evangelism? John 20, verses 21 through 23, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you, and after saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. God has given us a word to share, and he's given us a spirit who empowers us to share it. Now, what is this word? Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 5.19. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Jesus is not saying in John 20 that you get to sit on God's throne and decide who to forgive and who not to forgive. What he's saying is you have a message about the forgiveness of sins, and if you keep it to yourself, it's as good as retaining people, keeping them in their sins. But if you tell them, you're freeing them from their sins. We have this opportunity to go and share the freedom-giving, life-giving word that has been shared with us. Being people of the truth does not mean being people who are on defense all the time. I used to, like, I still, sometimes when you, you think about a, a, a church that would start its core values series with truth, you might think about a church that, that almost views the church as this sort of fortress that needs to protect against the bad ideas of the world seeping in and infecting our people. That's not what truth is about. We have the opportunity to use the words of Jesus to go and take the truth and be on offense and attack the gates of hell. To go and free people who have been held captive all their, their life by lies, by untruths that have not freed them, that have not given them life. And we get to tell them the liberating truth of God's Son and God's Spirit. And as Jesus said, and as we heard earlier this morning, what this will do for us, what this will do for, for people who we share the gospel with, we can know the truth. And when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. 